Well hello my friends, this is CK from the Mirths and Monsters podcast. Join me, my companion Finn, and my occasionally satanically possessed cat Ray Puny mortals. as we investigate the real truths behind some of the most wonderful creatures you can imagine. Are trolls really that thick? Or is it just bad press? Are leprechauns really drunken bums? Uh. Sort of. But there's a lot more to find out. All you need to do is tune in to Mirths and Monsters podcast with me and Finn. Till next time, slancha your good health. people this is historical af and if you cuss like we do you better strap on in hopefully you cuss like we do <laughs> those poor virgin ears are going to get abused i'm natalie <laughs> and i'm kita we are a historian and a librarian delivering the funny weird spooky and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed straight to your ear holes welcome to episode 21 the asylums part two <laughs> i'm so excited this is literally the only topic that I am an expert in, so this moment is fleeting, and I'll never be an expert again. But, if you can tell by our intro, there's only two of us now, so we have some news for you guys. So, we are going to let Ashley tell you what's going on with the message that she has for you guys. Hello listeners, Ashley here. Because of some mental health issues and um, starting a new job and all of that, I've decided to step down as a co-host of Historical AF Pod. If you want to keep up with me, you can check out my Instagram at AJRulo, or uh, I have a Twitter. It's bookitbabe, all one word. And uh, no worries, you are in excellent hands with Kina and Natalie. And have a great year. Love you guys. Bye. So we are sad to be without Ashley, but Natalie and I are going to continue the podcast and we have a lot of ideas. We're going to just be us, but we're going to throw in an occasional guest host in there that is either going to be, for example, a comedian we know, hint, hint, foreshadowing. And then we also want to have people that are experts in the theme that we're talking about. So we'll just kind of shake it up every once in a while with some guests, but uh, yeah. Ooh, another foreshadowing would be super nerdy people, like people yeah. who love comic books or people that collect Legos and other fun stuff. I would love to do History of Toys. Please comment if you would like to do that because I'm <laughs> nerdy enough for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. My spoiler alert. My sister is writing her thesis on comic books about the historical importance of, you know, the Jewish immigrants and, you know, early America and the emergence of Superman. It's super fascinating, so I can't wait to pick her brain about that. I mean, I've heard the story about a thousand times, but I love it. Just you have to cool. share it with the world. So when I worked at the library, I used to make her come and do presentations, and she did one on Black Panther and the importance of diversity in comics, and then she did one on women in comics, and it was amazing, and I love it, and uh, we should just make her do the whole thing. Like, you gotta do all three subjects to go. <laughs> <laughs> We're just gonna listen. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, we got a lot of stuff in store, and we're we're just gonna, you know, we are sad that things are kind of shaken up, but you know, we're gonna shaken, but we're just gonna shaken, but not stirred. <laughs> but yeah, so how was your week, Natalie? Besides all this going on, you're going on vacation. 
Yes, I am leaving for Florida tomorrow after recording this, and it's a little stressful getting everything ready and all the fun stuff and painting a lot, getting ready for a gallery night coming up. Because as soon as I get back from Florida, trying to make money by selling some artwork. But <laughs> anyways, how was your week? Gotta get that hustle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my brother-in-law is in town. He's in the military like my husband. So he's at like a military conference thing or whatever. So he's been popping in and out to hang out with us. And we're going to go floating. I think. Oh, I love floating. <sighs> Well, apparently we have, like, the best rivers ever. Like, people from all over the country come to San Antonio, New Braunfels area to go floating. And I have not done that yet. So, I feel like I'm a disappointment to all Texans. But I'm going to get to do it. I'm really excited. And you get, like, your own cooler for your beer. Yeah. It's amazing. Like so, you. Yeah, uh, like you do. If you are in Arkansas, I do recommend going to the Costatot River. In Native American, it means skull crusher. And there's, like... Ooh! Yeah. My family, we used to go there every summer, and if, if we can, we usually, we still do around the 4th of July time, but some of the parts are like a lazy river, and then some of them have whitewater rapids, and like, it can be pretty dangerous, hence the Skull Crusher title, but it's really cool. If you are in Arkansas, that's awesome that Texas has great tourism for that, too. Yeah, fun fact, Arkansas is the natural state for that very reason. <laughs> <laughs> so they got going for them. It's pretty. <laughs> There's lots of rivers <laughs> and lakes. Lots of and yeah, like my neck of the woods was the buffalo. So everybody floats the buffalo up there in the Ozark Mountains. Those hillbillies. Cute banjo sounds. But uh, <laughs> I know I was going to say, it's pretty and rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So my husband is like ultimate Yankee. He's almost Canada Yankee in the US. And so when I took him to my hometown for the first time, he was just. Everywhere he went, he was trying to find banjos. He had expected that banjos were going to be playing everywhere we went. And I'm like, they don't really do that. But then we went to Branson, Missouri for like a little mini vacation. And there was banjos everywhere. And he's like, I knew it. I knew there were banjos. The South is a large area. (laughs) But you know, the hillbilly ideal is just everybody's barefoot and got their banjos. And they wear plaid and have grass sticking out of their mouth and the, the most accurate thing you said is plaid <laughs> it's true and uh fun fact here's a little historical for you the whole arkansas barefoot and pregnant thing didn't happen until the 50s 60s era one of our congressmen said we don't want women going to work we want to keep them barefoot and pregnant and that stuck <laughs> so now it's this whole idea that the whole barefoot and pregnant in arkansas has always been a thing but it really is a surprisingly contemporary idea that some asshole decided to make a thing. Goddamn things. I hate that. I know. I was so shocked. I always thought that it was some, like, really old term. But when I found out that it was, you know, our lifetimes for some people, you know, I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> He's from Perryville. Fuck that guy. <laughs> no offense to Perryville, though. No offense to Perryville. But that guy, always oh, going on the fuck you list. Side note, that's a thing. And I've made it a thing. And uh, we'll be posting it soon. (laughs) What are we drinking over there? Oh, rum. Kraken rum. It's my favorite. I'm treating myself today. (sighs) Sorry. Oh, it's all falling out. It's all falling out of... I have a cooler. (laughs) Now I understand why podcasters do drink wine. Because then you can just pour a new glass. But I always do, like, you know, can of soda and rum. 
But it's really hard to maintain through the hour that it takes for us to record. I have a cooler. And a can of Coke. <laughs> yeah, Kraken rum and Diet Coke is my favorite drink. That does sound really good. I have some Kraken. I need to pop that open. Oh, it's so good. And it's my, oh, fun. I'm like a celebrity because I made a Kraken pie for Thanksgiving one year. And Kraken rum shares it every National Pie Day. So, oh, really? That's so cool. Yeah. I forgot. I, I knew they shared it, but I didn't realize it was annually now. Well, the first year they just like shared it because I, I think I put it on Imgur because I was like, look what I did. And then they just shared it. And I commented on Twitter being like, cool, that's my pie. And then they're like, oh, we tried to find you so we could cite the source, but we couldn't find you. I'm like, mm. it's not hard hard to find me, but cite me now. shared it. <laughs> so now they cite me. Yay. Citing is awesome. Cite those sources. Oh, I just spilt rum all over my notes. <laughs> oh my god, that's bad. That's I'm sorry. Folks, Kina has massively spilled some rum. Like, let's say a quarter of the page is now um, ink splotched and everything. It's like she just took a quill and just splattered ink all over it. Oh, it's fine. Everything's fine. Great. All right. We're just going to dive into it to my rum-soaked notes. That's how I'm going to pick which story I'm going to start first. I'm going to go with the rum-soaked one. Perfect. (laughs) All right. I had funny. And it's really hard to come up with a funny topic for insane asylums because it's not a funny topic. I don't know. If you have a dark sense of humor, you probably can (laughs) wing it. So I went with more wild psychiatric treatments. And then, you know, we're just going to go from there. But... A lot of this came from a really great article I found called Odd and Outlandish Psychiatric Treatments Throughout History by Brett Detka and John Watson. And then I also found some stuff on mental floss. Some people are killing it over there with some funny-ass articles, so I really enjoy their writing. (laughs) So the first procedure is called trepanation. Have you ever heard of it? I have, but, but continue. So... Let's be honest, historically speaking, there's probably a lot of reasons why people would end up with a big-ass hole in their head. They had drunken duels, wars, rock-throwing, run-ins with some undomesticated animals, somebody wanting to steal your shit, you might have been sacrificed, a victim of some spear-throwing, there's an accident, and then there's, like, quotation accident, and a whole lot more other stuff that happened where you'd get a hole in your head. But alas, not all holes are created equal, and some were intentional. Through the years, archaeologists have uncovered skulls that feature a carefully cut circular gap, and it shows signs that these cuts were made before the person passed away. These holes were no accident. They were a result of one of the earliest forms of psychiatric treatment called trepanation. (laughs) The uh, basic idea here is that insanity is caused by demons that are lurking inside your skull. I mean, obviously... This sounds painful. (laughs) So naturally, drilling a hole into the patient's head creates a door through which the demon can escape. So (laughs) no demon, no insanity. Bada bing, bada boom. You're cured. (laughs) I don't really think it's like that easy. I have a strange suspicion that that didn't work as well as they planned. Probably not. This was surprisingly popular, despite being batshit crazy, and it happened in a time before anesthesia, so really, really think about that for a second. That's a a hard pass, I'm going to say. Oh, man, it's going to be a big, (laughs) 
Nah, dog, for me, I'll keep my demons inside my head. I don't don't need a hole. I would be so lonely without them. (laughs) Right? Archaeological evidence indicates that trepanation was performed as far back as the Mesolithic era using crude stone tools and in nearly every corner of the world. Freaking yikes, man. Like, stones cutting holes in your brain? Oh, my God. So the exact motives of this ancient ancestor by performing this operation is lost to time because they didn't document it in some medical journal back then. And written evidence of its medical application first appeared in the 5th century BCE by Hippocrates. On his book on injuries of the head, in which trepanation is described as a treatment for cranial injury sustained in military campaigns. Doctors eventually phased out the practice as less invasive procedures were developed. Average Joes, on the other hand, didn't follow suit. Trepanation patrons still exist. This is not a lie. In fact, they have their very own organization, like the Internal Trepanation Advocacy Group. I mean... I think it's so crazy for it to be that recent of a medical issue or whatever that people are still alive like this is not something from so long ago where only the remains were found like no there are people today with this <laughs> i am all for joining a club like make some friends get out there be social but don't join a drill a hole in your head club there's isn't there, other <laughs> isn't there a phrase about that like something's better than having a hole in your head or you rather have a hole in your head <laughs> Yes, yes there is. I wonder if they started it. I'm not (laughs) judging you if you're like pro hole in the head, but I'm just thinking like there's easier ways to go about this. Well, maybe if it's like a support group. (laughs) Wait, don't you feel stupid that you had to have this done and now they're like antibiotics and medicine? (laughs) It's true. There's other options, kids. All right. The next one is phrenology. One of the better-known weird-ass treatments in psychiatric history, phrenology, or the science of the mind, that said that the separate areas of the brain controlled unique functions relevant to personality and mental faculty, which is not really that far off from what we've learned. Your brain does have different sections that do different things. But around the turn of the 19th century, German physician Franz Gall developed phrenology, which is a practice based on the idea that a person's personality is depicted on the bumps and depressions in their skull. I mean. (laughs) If that's the case, then there's like a lot of fucked up people in the world. Right? I mean, I am 100% confident that if I shaved my head, I would not be attractive. Like, I feel (laughs) like I have a bumpy head. But I also don't think that that's like an, you know, indicator that, you know, there's something wrong with me. I just... Some people have beautiful heads and really rock the shaved head thing. I just yes. can't. I, oh, another another thing in history that I wouldn't have, you know, done well at. <laughs> I would have lost my head, been burned as a witch, and then I'd be insane because my head's not pretty. Anywho, so Gall believed that the parts of the brain a person used more often gets bigger, just like your old muscles. Consequently, these pumped-up areas would take up more skull space and would leave visible bumps in those places in your head. He then tried to determine which parts of the skull corresponded to these traits. So if you had bumps over your ears, it meant that you were destructive. If you had a ridge on top of your head, it indicated benevolence. And thick folds on the back of your neck were a sign of sexually oriented personalities. (laughs) 
So next time you see a dude that's like bald has the big lump on the back of his neck, you're gonna be like, dude, I know, I know what you're into. Bald you. <laughs> I know that thought's there. It's never leaving. <laughs> In the end, phrenologists did little to make their mark in the medical field, as they couldn't actually treat personality issues. Shocking. I know. (laughs) And uh, they didn't actually diagnose anybody, because they were never accurate. By the early 1900s, the fad had waned, and modern neuroscience had garnered dominion over the brain. So, it's no surprise that the fad fizzled out. Phrenology was essentially an old-world superstition that quickly mutated into something closer to a parlor game. Okay, so this part isn't funny, but it's worth noting. The practice inevitably turned racist. Racist-ass bullshit. So, 19th century Kentucky physician Charles Caldwell used this phrenology as evidence of the Native American inferiority. Phrenology fell out of favor in the medical community when it was determined to have no predictive power, but the negative impact of what this guy said about Native Americans stayed around for a really long time. So, I know that's not really funny, but there was a lot of racial undertones of uh, using phrenology to prove that people are inferior. It's almost expected. Yeah, so, fuck that guy too. (laughs) Basically. In other words, asshole. Yes, yes, yes. Side note, I was at the Alamo. It's the place I take everybody when they come to visit me. <laughs> and they have the living history people now. And there was some medical man doing phrenology. I thought that was pretty interesting. That is interesting. So the next one is called mesmerism. And uh, <laughs> my nerd is really going to show here. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Yoda, Austrian physician Franz Mesmer who lived 1734 to 1815, believed that an invisible force pervaded everything in existence and that disruptions in this force caused pain and suffering. No. (laughs) But Mesmer's ideas would have been little use to Luke Skywalker. I can't even say it because I'm so ashamed of myself. Okay, Luke Skywalker. This became the notion of animal magnetism, later to be termed mesmerism. Mesmer thought that any number of ailments that were caused by naturally occurring magnetic fields and they could be realigned to improve your health. So basically the gravity of the moon affects the body's fluids the same way that it causes the ocean tides to change and that some diseases accordingly waxed and waned with the phases of the moon. Some hippie shit if I've ever heard it. I know this is like new age child going on. <laughs> So the dilemma was to uncover what could be done about this pesky gravity. So his solution was magnets, (laughs) naturally. (laughs) After all, gravity and magnetism were both about objects being attracted to each other. So he initially administered high doses of iron to patients, which would be guided through the body with the age of strategically placed magnets. Other variations call for patients to be seated in a chemical-filled tub with iron rods applied to the affected area of the body. Holy shit, dude. (laughs) It makes me think of, like, the crystal stuff a little bit. Yeah. I'm thinking, like, chemical-filled tube. Are they, like, radioactive or cancerous? (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Are they Wolverine? (laughs) Oh, what's that called? Uh, Adamantium? Yes. (laughs) They can be Wolverine. I love that. That's what I'm calling it now. That's just Wolverine. (laughs) Oh, what's it called, though? Oh, shit. What's it called when it's their, like, 
origin story. It's his origin story. <laughs> Eventually, Mesmer claimed to possess magnetic powers of his own, and he would use suggestive energy of his hands alone to treat patients. He also had a flair for the dramatic, and he would wear magician-like purple robes, and he claimed to have cured hysterical blindness with his therapies. He charmed his way into the upper parts of Parisian society. His persuasiveness met its limits in the skeptical king Louis XVI, who created a royal commission of scientists that included then-U.S. Ambassador Benjamin Franklin to debunk his claim. So I thought that was really fun. Old Ben Franklin, uh, which all I can think about now after I did that story on Ben Franklin is that, like, he fucked. Like, he was such a ladies' man. (laughs) Surprisingly, many patients praised the treatment as a miracle cure, but medically it didn't check out. It was dismissed as superstitious garbage, and they chalked it up to the placebo effect. So, obviously, magnets don't help. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question. So do you think Ben Franklin had those folds on the back of his head? (laughs) I need to, like, look at every portrait ever of Ben Franklin until I find the (laughs) folds. But yeah, he had mistress upon mistress, and every photo, like, Google it if you don't believe me, every painting of him in France, he's surrounded by, like, 20 women that are just oogling him. He apparently had a magical dick. I don't know what it was called. (laughs) Some sort of personality. I mean, come on. I mean, same thing with Rasputin. That man was scary as hell. He had, like, Charles Manson vibes to me, but he... Ladies were all over that shit. I don't know. Magical wiener. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Mesmer and his theories were ultimately discredited, but he still left his mark. Today, he's considered the father of modern hypnosis because he inadvertently discovered the power of suggestion. And his name lives on in the English word for mesmerize. Ooh. He's also thought to have laid the groundwork for strains of American psycho-spiritualism. So, he was out there talking bullshit, but he actually accomplished something on accident. That's <laughs> why I feel like a lot of good things happen. It's just it's on true. accident. Like, penicillin was just moldy bread. Everything's just an accident. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of it is from mold. <laughs> true. <laughs> We're going to talk about penicillin here in a little bit. Okay, the next one is called rotational therapy, which I don't think I've heard of. And it's so funny. So Charles Darwin's peepaw, or grandpa, for those who are unaware of the awesome southern terminology. Lunch papaw. <laughs> his name was Erasmus Darwin, and he was a physician, philosopher, and scientist. But from what I could find from every source ever I looked at, he sucked at all three. <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody thought he was great at it. Which is probably why his ideas weren't always taken seriously. Of course, this could be because he liked to record them in bad poetic verse. And here's a sample. (laughs) By immutable and moral laws, impressed in nature by the great first cause, say muse, how rose from elemental strife, organic forms, enkindled into life. I have no idea what the fuck he's talking about, but... I know, he sounds like he's trying to mix medicine and Shakespeare. (laughs) It's true. With the rose and love and stuff? I don't know. Sounds dumb. It could also be because his theories were pretty far-fetched, such <laughs> as his spinning couch treatment. <laughs> oh, man. This is like Lego movie with the double-decker couch. Yeah. <laughs> Just now picture that spinning. 
Darwin's logic was that sleep could cure disease and that spinning around really fast was a great way to induce slumber. (laughs) Obviously, nobody paid much attention to this idea at first, but later American physician Benjamin Rush adopted this treatment for psychiatric purpose. He believed that spinning would reduce brain congestion and in turn cure mental illness. He was wrong. Instead, he just ended up with a lot of dizzy people. (laughs) These days, rotating chairs are limited to the study of vertigo and space sickness. Fun (laughs) fact there. Darwin's theories later found an eager adopter in Dr. Joseph Mason Cox, who developed a novel technique for rotating patients' bodies in specifically designed chairs. Reports of patients reaching a tranquil state after the procedure encouraged a spread across Europe. Doctors in Germany and Ireland used variations of Cox's design, reported miraculous cures for patients with hysteria, as well as the beneficial induction of sleep and mania. But if you're just spinning me around on a couch, don't you think you'd be like, I'm cured, please stop. Yeah, I'm I'm throwing up. (laughs) I just, I would say whatever you wanted to make you stop spinning me. So the medical benefits of this are non-existent. But they're notable for providing the very first descriptions of G-forced induced biomedical efforts, which is probably the smartest thing I've ever said. Like, (laughs) just sounds really smart. Next is malaria therapy. And it is not the treatment of malaria, like you might think. Sorry, I love this one. I stumbled on it while I was doing my research, and it really surprised me. Right? Please go on. So, this is not to treat malaria, but it's to use malaria to treat syphilis. And, uh, <laughs> fun fact, I'm actually on medicine for my old lupus that is an anti-malarial. So, I was like, hey, <laughs> I have a connection to malaria. Anyway, STDs. Okay. What <laughs> Please I don't do- have a connection to that. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm good. <laughs> Once identified as the disease of the century, neurosyphilis often involved grand delusions, paralysis, and dementia. There was no cure for the syph until the early 1900s when Viennese neurologist Wagner von Dreg got the idea to treat syphilis sufferers with malaria-infected blood. Who's the first person he treated? He's like, all right, guy, I got this great idea. I'm going to inject malaria into you, and it's going to work. I promise. I would hope it'd be someone that is close to dying, and this was like a Hail Mary kind of shot. I hope so, because I, I mean, if somebody came out with me, well, I'm going to inject you with malaria. It's going to work out, I promise. Don't worry about it. Just let it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Just let it happen. <laughs> As you would imagine, these patients would develop the disease, which would cause an extremely high fever that would kill the syphilis bacteria. I'm just wondering if this was like a happy accident. Somebody got malaria and they're like, oh shit, this worked. Or that. Once that happened, they were given a malaria drug, quinine, and then they were cured and sent home happy and healthy. Mm-hmm. The treatment did have a share of side effects. Well, I'm thinking no shit, Sherlock, there. That the nasty sustained high fever for one. It worked, but it was a whole lot better than dying. In fact, von Greg's treatment remained in use until the development of penicillin came along and gave doctors a better and safer way to treat STDs. Nonetheless, this guy's work was notable for linking psychosis to potentially natural causes, a goal since the days of Apocrypes, 
but one that had failed to overcome more popular, moralistic, and stigmatizing ideas about how psychiatric disorders were caused. His efforts garnered him a Nobel Prize, making him the first psychiatrist and one of the very few to date that received the honor. So I thought that was neat. I know, that's why that one surprised me so much. It actually worked, Mm -hmm. somewhat at least. It sounds bonkers, but it worked. And then finally, this last one, it just sounded like aluminum foil hat to me, but here we (laughs) go. It's called Organ Therapy. Wilhelm Reich, the famous or perhaps infamous psychoanalyst, was born in 1897 in Austria. By the time he died in a Pennsylvania jail in 1957, he had gone from one of Freud's most promising pupils to a pariah within the psychiatric community. Like his mentor's theories of the human libido, Reich determined human sexuality and impulses are a major source of dysfunction. But while Freud described a controlled inhibition of these impulses, Reich sought to unleash them. Like Franz Mesmer before him, Reich believed that life is dictated by external, quasi-supernatural energies, namely Orgon, a sexual life force permeating in the universe. (laughs) What? (laughs) Did the spirit have folds in the back of their head? (laughs) Somebody fact check that for me. Get to the bottom of it. So Reich proposed that he could harness this force with a metal and steel wool lined wooden box of his own devising, the organ energy accumulator. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's made up, but it's real. All right. So enough time spent in this contraption, Reich claimed. A patient's repressions and ailments would just melt away. Such was Reich's stature that he convinced Albert Einstein to spend two weeks studying the box's merits. Einstein didn't find shit. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration eventually saw to it that Reich seized his dubious promotional claims about the Oregon Energy Accumulator. It was an injection that he broke, (laughs) leading (laughs) to his eventual imprisonment. In the 1960s, devotees of the world of arts, including writers Henry Miller, Norman Mailer, and William S. Burroughs, extolled Wright's theories to a receptive nation in the midst of sexual revolution. The scientific community has been less enthusiastic. I can't imagine why. (laughs) And a 2006 poll ranked organ therapy as the third most discredited psychological treatment just behind past life regression therapy and using crystals for healing. So full circle back to those crystals. (laughs) (laughs) That really is a full circle. (laughs) And that's my thing. Yeah, that... I was trying to find funny in Asylum, but it's really hard. But I thought some of those treatments were just wild. They made me giggle. Yeah, because you just wonder, like, how, what makes you think this will work? You know, giving someone (laughs) malaria to fix a completely not relative problem, related problem. I'm assuming that a lot of these people just had the confidence to just be like, yeah, this is going to work. Let's do this. And people are like, all right. Or they found, like, two studies that justify what they thought. And they just like, all right, I'm done. Dropping the pin. Genius. (laughs) I am a genius. Listen to me. Come into my box lined with steel wool. Maybe they had, like, some kind of God complex. I could see that, too. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I think a lot of people that have the God complex are kind of attracted to the medical and want to have that power. So 
And they think I, that they're always right. And it's true. <laughs> or if they don't fix it, it's a their failure. I know that spin one to put you to sleep. I I don't know anybody like how that would get started. I like. I think it's like, do they pass out? Because <laughs> they think that was sleeping. Fainting. Yeah. I've seen those NASA things where they're training to be an astronaut and they accidentally just pass out while they're being in that G-force machine. I'm a, yes. I'm assuming it's similar. I, I figure they're going to just have a lot of vomit and then someone being passed out. Like, that's what I'm picturing <laughs> right now. The pictures were so funny. It's like they created a couch just for spinning. Oh, it's wild. We'll put that up on Facebook and our blog, but holy shit, guys. It's so funny. <laughs> I, I just can't. <laughs> I know, I'm shaking my head right now. I have no words. Like, I'm sorry, podcast people. I'm just shaking my head. <laughs> this is why I love psychology so much. The classes where we talked about past treatments were just so crazy. I just love them so much. They were my favorite. We had to take the history of psychology before we could graduate. That was my favorite class ever. That's where I learned about a lot of this. It sounds like a, a happy topic. <laughs> Well, I'm just like, ooh, it's fascinating. It's terrible. It's honestly terrible. I'm just fascinated. Yeah, the morbid fascination, you know, like people being fascinated by serial killers and yeah, I mean, it's just to, morbid fascination. I really wanted to work a lobotomy oh, in there, but ah! Jesus fuck! Oh my god, Zeke was outside the window. I'm glad it was Zeke and not a murderer. <laughs> Me too. Oh, you promised to release I come to your podcast. Just wait. That, that, hope that was it. I'm sorry. He it's does this okay. thing where he's like zombie apocalypse training and then he like tries to bite me. What is, what is wrong with you? Like, you <laughs> know, if you take me down, you're going with me. It's true. That is my goal. That's true marriage, right? <laughs> like, you're going down with me, motherfucker. Let's do this. Yeah, death does not do us part. Like, <laughs> I'm dragging you down with me. Absolutely. All right. What do you got for me? You had random this week, right? I have random, and what I have is random. I also have more treatments, so get ready. I hope you're wanting to hear more treatments. And that's how I actually knew about some of the stuff you're talking about. And I was a little worried. I'm like, oh, damn. Like, I hope we don't have all the same things, but we do not. Um, (laughs) And I did look up some other just really random facts that I will get to. So. I was going to say, I love your list. They make me happy. Good. (laughs) I am a list maker. And that's. I wish that was profession. I guess this is as close as I can get as profession for lists. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get rolling. First off, insulin coma therapy. Oh, I saw that when I I was, oh my gosh. Insulin coma therapy. Just reading that, I'm like, I have questions. (laughs) (laughs) So many. I have a lot of red flags. Like, that doesn't sound right. Nope. Those are three things I don't really want to hear. Insulin, I'm not a diabetic. Coma, well, I'm still talking. And then therapy, no thanks. I'll just deal with my inner demons myself. (laughs) And I'm poor. (laughs) (laughs) So insulin coma therapy began in 1927 with Manfred Sickle. He accidentally gave a diabetic patient an insulin overdose, and which sent this person, the lady, sent her into a coma. And it turned into an actual triumph. When she woke up, she was a drug addict. And when she woke up, she claimed that she was cured, that she had no longer the urge for morphine. That's what she was addicted to. So a similar thing happened where another, luckily, another diabetic patient, he gave them insulin. And 
voila, same thing kind of happened. There was a coma, and then they eventually came out of it, and they were like, oh, I feel so much better. I feel well-rested, I guess. (laughs) They felt cured. (laughs) And so what became an accident then became intentional. He started actually seeking out his patients and testing them, and it was a 90% recovery rate. And what what I'm most concerned about is that he was focused on schizophrenics, but luckily... It was sort of a fad, like it, it only lasted not that long. And eventually medicine and got better and, and the right pills for schizophrenia happened. Oh, I don't, there was, there's not really any explanation for it. That's crazy. Thank God for science. Can you imagine how much longer this would have went on before science was like, no, dude, stop, don't do that. Yeah, let me like force people into a coma and hopefully they'll wake up in a week or so. It's, it's crazy that it actually works. That's probably the most surprising part is that it actually had a positive. I wonder how many of those people died, though, like you went too far. It's- That's what I wondered. This website kept it a little vague, and I'll admit I didn't have time to do deeper research. Because I was curious about that, too, like how many failures there were. But I don't even think there's that much records just because it was in 1927 so. before the war. I am like... 99% sure the people didn't document the failures. Oh, yeah. They were like, who wants to admit that? <laughs> yeah. I am invincible. I am God. I do not fail. <laughs> well, and like I said, in 1927, before the big wars, World War One, World War Two, like, who knows what was left after all of that. And by then, we had better medicine mm-hmm. to accommodate. And didn't give diabetics overdose of insulin. So, you know, that fun stuff. Number two, hydrotherapy. Ooh, I was really hoping you did this. <laughs> of course, when I think hydrotherapy, I first thought hydra, which is, you know, not close at all. Hail hydra. That's exactly what I was about to say. Good job. I hope those in your cars or wherever you are listening, I hope you said the same thing. Hell yeah. Moving on. All right. The idea is, is water calming you. You would think, you know, a relaxing river and water running and a fountain, like, oh, soothing, spa day. Yeah, no, this is terror. So we have, <laughs> for the hy- hyper peeps, we've got warm water, warm baths. All right, okay. And if you were very lethargic, which I guess was probably more me, lazy, <laughs> you got sprayed in the face with the hose. Talking about hysteria a few episodes ago, they used to do that too. They would just put point a hose at your vag and hope that it was kind of like a vibrator, and that's how they cured hysteria. Whose idea was this? Somebody's like, fire hose, this is what we gotta do, guys. <laughs> Got this. You know, goddamn humans, you gotta appreciate some creativity. <laughs> you know, I give you that, folks. I give you creativity. Good job. A for effort on that one. <laughs> yeah. Being sprayed in the face would not make me less lethargic. It would make me pissed. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, so some of it seemed more like punishment, obviously, being shot in the face with a water hose. Some were sprayed, and the, the hose was like a fire hose. It's like a, some tough pressure happening right there. And then some were submerged for hours. Oh, oh no. Hours. So just imagine just a little bit, just enough where your face is up. And the rest of you is, like, just so you can breathe, and the rest of you has just been submerged for hours, like, half the day. My God, that's like waterboarding. Basically. Torture. (laughs) Holy shit. 
So imagine like claustrophobia and all that other stuff. Like I would not like that. And, and you're strapped down and you were only let out if you needed to use the restroom. I'd be it. like, I have a small bladder, sir. I need to go pee again. Let's stop this right now. Let's do Let's go. So not all the water was warm. Some was super, super cold. Taking towels and soaking it in ice, ice cold water. And they would wrap you up in a mummy and submerge you. Oh, oh, Jesus. But that was your word for random. So ding, ding, ding. <laughs> cold. <laughs> Take a shot. <laughs> oh, God, it's horrible. It, it is. I, I really can't either. And I'm a person where I like, I can handle some cold water. Like, I've jumped into some ponds and rivers swimming, and it was freezing. You know, you swim and you get used to it. It's mm-hmm. submerged for hours and... And then also being bound like a mummy with these really cool towels, you're bound. And I am a wiggle worm. Like I cannot, my legs cannot be trapped or I will, I will go insane. (laughs) I remember that from that class I took. They talked about the wrapping you in cold blankets and just leaving you there. What the actual fuck? But this went on until like the fifties. Yes. Like that's not that long ago, guys. This is crazy. Why would you do that? It's horrible. Next up chemically induced seizures this one again questions (laughs) kind of like the coma with insulin chemically induced seizures oh my gosh this was more for schizophrenics again poor schizophrenic people i'm so sorry for you yeah epileptic people what what happened was the doctor noticed that epileptics always feel better after having a seizure they feel blissful and just more relaxed and calm so ladislas Von Meduna, this doctor, thought that it was good for them to have a seizure and then maybe that would help them feel better. They used the chemical Matrazole. It stimulates the circulatory and respiratory systems. It actually does work. It actually does ease them. And I think sometimes it's still used today. Very rarely, though. Because it is way too dangerous if having a seizure, there's a lot of fractured bones sometimes while you're jarring around, and sometimes even memory loss. Oh, wow. They think what happened was while you're in the seizure, it's releasing some kind of chemicals that is lacking, and it just gives you at least a brief amount of time of calm, of clarity. But it's not worth it when you've broken both your arms or you don't remember certain things. So it's... And it hasn't been done in a while, but it actually, it was one of those, kind of like the malaria thing. It actually did work. That is, I think that's the scariest thing to me. It's a lot of these sound so terrible, but they actually worked. That's just, oh my God. So when I was a kid, I had febrile seizures, apparently. And my mom said that I would like projectile vomit. So high five to my mom for not thinking I was possessed. Because <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, that Oh my gosh. So scary. But yeah, seizures, you can like bite your tongue off and you can like hurt oh my god so many things you can do yeah i really wonder i really wonder what would cause a person to think that that was a better option like how bad were you to think yes i need to do this once a week how often that i wonder that too like how often do you need to do that so you could stay sane yeah i mean i understand the desperation like if you feel so terrible that this is the only thing that makes you feel better i think i'm 100% 100% understand why you would do it, but it's still really scary. Can't imagine how scared they were, but they had to have been so hopeful that things would have got better. Oh, my heart. <laughs> my heart hurts. Well, it might continue hurting because next up is lobotomy. 
Everyone kind of knows about lobotomy, so I'm not going to go into detail too much about it. But what I did not know is that there was a lobotomobile. Not what? a Batmobile or anything like that. <laughs> this is a lobotomobile. Oh, no. Oh, no. So a lobotomy, you know, is a, a cut into the brain, basically. And they just scramble about a little bit and hope that, oh, yeah, everything's fine. And it was such a fad in such great need that there was lobotomobiles, which would be someone traveling around with an ice pick. Oh, no. Making oh. house calls. And they would take the ice pick and stick it in your eye, like run your eye socket. Absolutely not. No, 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 and no, no. And they no. would no. twist it around a little bit. Ah. <laughs> and they would be like, all right, I'm done. And then they would oh. go on to the next house, the next oh place. Oh, God. Oh, it's so scary because it, it goes straight into your frontal lobe, which is your personality. That is so scary to me. Yes. I mean, it does make you calm and you don't lash out and shit. But still, like, who you are is your frontal lobe. That is so terrifying. Yeah, you're basically a vegetable. A slightly mobile, more movable vegetable. I think that I'm goddamn delightful. I can't imagine just being nothing. Like, nothing left in me. Oh, my God, that's so scary. I can't. I know. And one of the samples were, like, schizophrenia and those who just are having trouble mentally, PTSD, things like that. But one of them is a disinfected, disaffected wife. So we're like, my wife is not behaving properly. She's an ice pick in the eye. Well, let's add this to the list of things I would have been in the history. I am too opinionated and I argue too much. Yep. Okay. This last one of treatments, I do have a couple more things, but of treatments, this last one is my favorite oh my god (laughs) you can't see her face but she just like lit up (laughs) it is it's so goddamn funny it's okay it's a cure for hysteria or or actually better yet it's what causes hysteria and particularly in women because they were most commonly accused of this oh she has hysteria because of whatever reason that might be but that floating uterus yo that's what it is the wandering womb. <laughs> that is what is called the wandering womb. That could cause apparently a woman's fits. I wonder what fits are. Like, is that when she's pissed off or, or literally having an episode of some kind? Or when she faints or muteness just doesn't want to talk to your ass. So, yes, the wandering womb. <laughs> yep, it's the womb and it's supposed to move into your chest. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to move into your chest and apparently you're supposed to have trouble breathing and that stresses you out and that's why you have fits and you faint and you don't talk to people but they notice when you're having a baby the womb is perfectly in, in place and that is called womb calming <laughs> So that's and why it, they wanted us to be pregnant all the time. Because the only yes, for this. Oh my god! Exactly. It is. They thought, well, the womb obviously has been vacant for too long, and it would wander, and then that's what fucked up your wife. Oh my god! I would be fucked. <laughs> womb would be all over the place. Oh my god! Yeah, we kind of touched this on this on the medical episode. I went into like the treatments for hysteria, but yeah, the wandering womb has been a thought for centuries. Yeah. Like what the fuck, people? <laughs> 
and I have no interest in having children, so I'm like, how many more years do I have left in me before this happens? <laughs> Yeah, I I just think of, according to them, whenever a woman's I can't remember, it's just your uterus banging against your brain for being like, uh. <laughs> okay, if that's the case, then I do not have much longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, couple more things, and that is I found this website, forty four freaky facts about insane asylums. Some oh, of them you, yeah, <laughs> some of them I'm not gonna read all forty four. We. I, no, we don't have time for that. But I do encourage you to Google it, this little article going on. And I'm going to read a few of them for you. I'm so excited. And the ice pink lobotomies are on here, just FYI. So that's another confirmation that that really did happen. It's like the one word that makes me cringe every time you say it. I'm just like, oh, no. Anything in my tear ducts, I cannot deal with that. I just can't. Somebody shoving an ice pick in there. Oh, God. Nightmare fuel. Nightmare fuel. I can't. I know. It's, 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 it's no thank you. <laughs> okay. Carry on. Okay. Now that we're past that, that nightmare <laughs> of comas and seizures and the L word, uh, I'm going to read. Okay. Number 41 on this 44 list is zoo like conditions. Willowbrook State School in Staten Island. Operated under truly terrible conditions. Robert Kennedy turned the facility in the 60s. He was appalled by the zoo-like conditions when Geraldo Rivera investigated the asylum. He discovered that patients were left to wander around covered in their own urine and feces, and some were sexually assaulted by the staff. It may even have housed the famous criminal Cropsey who killed children and buried them in the Willowbrook grounds. The institution was also partly inspired for the American Horror Story season, The Asylum. So I thought that was kind of the only fun nugget of that was about American Horror Story. Yeah, I think we've done a couple episodes where American Horror Story has been inspired. Uh, I mean, high five to them for taking true historical events. Maybe that's why I actually like it. Holy shit. That's terrifying. I need to learn more about this Cropsy dude because I keep hearing about him and I don't know about him, so I'll have to be like a future serial killer episode. I have to admit, I haven't heard of him until just now, and or until yeah. I read that. So I'll have to we'll have to give that a Google as well. Or you do a whole episode of serial killers that have been in insane asylums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably could. Comment uh, below if you would like that to happen. Oh yes, yeah. Any feedback or comments or anything you want to add to this, like give us something we can either add it to an extra episode or just a little fun fact of the day that we started doing on instagram you know just throw that out there we'll help you out we'll google it for you hell yeah all right number 40 on this list is britain's largest mental institution it's the whittingham i love how like a lot of britain stuff has ham in their name (laughs) (laughs) it's true though like it's always ingham something Mm -hmm. so whittingham hospital was once Britain's largest mental hospital and was a pioneer in the use of, oh, that's a scary word, electro, let me go ahead and tell you, it's 18 syllables long. (laughs) (laughs) Intimidating. No, I didn't. I forgot about this word. Electro and self-philogrograms. That's as close as I'm going to get, y'all. It's number 40. In 1965, stories began to emerge of patients being locked in the courtyard in freezing weather, put to bed wearing only vests, and refused 
entry to the bathrooms. The hospital closed in 1995, but most of the buildings are actually still standing. I think it's interesting the fact that it, it just closed literally like in my lifetime. I was only four, granted, but still. And the fact that yeah. it's still there. Yeah, it's wild. Think about that. I think a lot of things with history, we're so disconnected because we're like, oh, that happened so long ago. But then when you're thinking about it, and you're like, oh, shit, I'm alive. <laughs> like, this is happening now. That's wild. Uh, the last one I will read for y'all is number 39. The title alone caught my interest on this one, I will admit. It is School for Idiotic Children. Oh. oh. I know. I, that's my, my dark humor coming out. Like It made me laugh. <laughs> And also sad. <laughs> and then laugh well, again. I, I'm going to beat this dead horse, but my thesis, every newspaper article I found was like imbeciles and idiotic children. I'm like, come on, guys, get the shit together. That's terrible. But mm-hmm. I mean, back then it was just, it wasn't offensive. It was just how you talked about them. It's just wild. So about this particular school, the Walter E. Fernal State School was originally described as a school for idiotic children. That's officially how it was described, just so y'all know. But it basically served as a prison for the mentally ill. (laughs) It's like not a school. (laughs) I mean, at least they just, like, were honest about it. We're not a school, we're a prison. (laughs) Many asylums at the time were referred to as schools, despite being nothing of the sort. Sexual and physical abuse was common at Fernald, and MIT researches experimented on the children, lacing food with radioactive materials to see how the body absorbed ions. In 1998, MIT agreed to pay $2 million to the survivors. Oh, wow. Well, that's mm-hmm. a cool thing right there. So you don't hear about that every day. Mm-mm. I thought that was a little interesting tidbit. So what turned out to be a dark comedy title that made me laugh and then feel sad and laugh again, then I'm like, oh, it turned out... No, I'm not going to say decent, but slightly better, I guess, but $2 million to the survivors. Like a little bit of justice. I mean, it's at least saying that they did something wrong if they had to pay that. So that's... Yeah, a little acknowledgement. Yes, this was fucked up. And yes, we're sorry. And here's at least some shush money. And that was it. There, Like I said, that is three out of the 44. And give that a Google freaky facts of asylums. I'll, that'll be on our sources, on our website. So check that out. I really recommend it. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, we've actually started adding our sources to our website. So if you guys want to dive into the stuff we don't get to, highly recommend. Because a lot of these articles are super good. Really good. Really Oh, man. I am also very impressed that we both did treatments and we didn't do the same ones. <laughs> I, I'll admit, I had some of the same ones. And as you were reading them off, I was marking them out. Okay. <laughs> I knew I'm just glad were. they were not all the same. <laughs> I knew that your word was cold. So I was trying to stay off the water and all that stuff. Oh, I love this topic so much. It probably says something about me. But like I said, <laughs> it's literally the only topic I'm an expert in. So <laughs> All right, so I also had weird this week. So I decided to do the weirdest things found in a in insane asylums. So like weird objects people or weird things people came across in a lot of these asylums. So I got three different ones for you. The first one I found from this really cool website called Road Trippers. And 
I didn't know about them until I saw that the road trippers came to Seguin where I live and they did a thing on the Magnolia hotel, which I'm obsessed with up here. If you follow me on Instagram, I keep on like live streaming being around the Magnolia, like a stalker, but <laughs> I just really like it. <laughs> I was like, I want to see a ghost in the window. Okay. All right. So the first one is from Athens lunatic asylum. And it was once one of Ohio's largest asylums for the mentally ill. And it was one of the first hospitals to be built using the Kirkbride plan, which I went into complete detail last week because that was my thesis. (laughs) Which, if you don't remember, it's essentially a hospital that's built a certain way so that the building and the grounds become part of the treatment. Which you should definitely listen to last week because it's probably the smartest I'm ever going to sound. Side note, during my research, I found that there were only four Kirkbrides in Ohio. Which is not to say that there's only four asylums in Ohio. Just four that were legitimately Kirkbrides. Which I know that I've said that a lot. So that a lot of states had a lot of asylums, but not all of them were specifically this kind. Anywho. The hospital officially opened its doors in January of 1874 and for a while provided some of the best care available at the time, mostly to Civil War soldiers suffering from the then misunderstood and they had no idea what the fuck it was post-traumatic stress disorder. So to put it in perspective, even World War II, people didn't know what PTSD was. They called it shell shock. So it wasn't until like recent history we even knew that this existed. But if everything was rainbows and butterflies then, it wouldn't be on our list or one of the most haunted asylums in the country. So here we go. Strap in. (laughs) As the years wore on, the staff began to realize that they could put many of their patients to work in the hospital's various facilities, such as farming, which operated for profit basis. And I'm telling you, there's a story with these farming initiatives with these asylums so if you're a historian looking for a thesis project this is it i'm telling you there's so much here (laughs) as the institute became greedier the number of patients admitted to the hospital grew so the kirkbride institutions gained a reputation as a good place to dump your family members or your wives and uh you know they could take care of them if you couldn't afford it so which is really sad (sighs) To say that overcrowding was a bit of an understatement, by the 1950s, the Athens Lunatic Asylum housed nearly 2,000 patients, over three times its capacity, and the amount of staff never changed. So let's put that in perspective. Three times the capacity with the same amount of staff. There's no way anybody was getting the care they needed. So sorry for that staff, too. Like, that sounds exhausting. Yes! I mean, it's... It's incredibly horrible for both sides. If you're there trying to legitimately get help, you can't get it. And if you're a staff that's really trying to help people, there's no way you can help everybody. It's really... Absolutely. So throw in the invention of shock therapy and the lobotomy that Natalie just talked about. We can say the L word if you want. The L word. (laughs) You basically have a damn mess. So patients were reportedly restrained for days at a time. They were in crowded rooms meant for one and beaten by cruel house hospital staff. So it's not to say that everybody that worked at an asylum was cruel, but if you're already a terrible person and you want to inflict pain on somebody, this is a perfect opportunity because they didn't vet people back then. Like (laughs) anybody could be hired. If you wanted to work for the asylum and they would just let you. So that's probably part of why so many instances of violence and sexual assault happen because there was nobody there to stop you. So it's really depressing. All right. So I said this is about something being found here. So here we go. Buckle up. It's going to get really dark. 
<laughs> like it hasn't been dark already. <laughs> it's going to get really dark. All right. So we're going to fast forward to 1979 on December 1st, 1979, which is way too close to our birthdays. Let's be honest. All right. A patient by the name of Margaret Schilling went missing. Despite the best, which we can assume is the poor efforts of the hospital staff, Margaret was nowhere to be found. It wasn't until 42 days later that her body was discovered, and it was located in a locked and an abandoned ward that was once used for patients with infectious diseases. Oh, this is really sad. Okay. Tests showed that she had died of heart failure, yet she was found completely naked with her clothing neatly folded next to her body. Worse yet, to the horror of those who found her, Margaret had decayed so much that a gooey imprint of her body had seeped into the concrete. Much to their dismay, the stain couldn't be scrubbed out no matter how much they tried. And to this day, a outline of her body can be seen at the top floor of the asylum. And some say that on clear nights, Margaret can be seen trying to escape the room that she died. Oh my god. There are photos. It is wild. I can't even imagine the horror of dying and nobody finding you, but also being the person that found that. It, yeah, it's just a, a cluster nightmare. Yes, it's 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 crazy. Because that building still exists, and you can see it. And I think that's probably, like, the highlight of Ghost Hunters and Paranormal experts now is to, like, go there and try to find her. But I also think it's just completely kind of wild. She died of heart failure, but why did she take all her clothes off? And why were they folded so nicely? It's just a huge mystery. I don't know what's going on, but I feel like there's more to the story. Oh, yeah, it definitely sounds like it. All right. The other two aren't as depressing. Okay. <laughs> Next is a birdcage. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how this is not as depressing. <laughs> I went from a dead body turn. Okay. So it's from the Sussex Lunatic Asylum, which is now the Brighton County Borough Asylum. And it was only from 1859 to 1939, so it's not still functioning. But I also like Sussex because I'm a huge fan of Meghan Markle. She's now the Duchess of Sussex. (laughs) And this birdcage is displayed at the Science Museum in London. And that's where I got a lot of this information from. It's from their website. So shocking. Asylums were kind of dreary. I know, you're shocked. You don't know how to deal with that information. Speechless. In the early 1900s, optimism of moral management was fading. And asylums were overcrowded. Patients were considered a lost cause, basically. So the story of overcrowding and downfall is pretty consistent in all the asylums. Anyhow, these majestic and huge buildings were once considered therapeutic. But at this point, they're depressing and pretty isolating. So in an attempt to brighten them up a little bit, caged parrots and birds were added. Photographs taken of the asylum in this period show that many of them had bird cages. This is one of the few bird cages that actually survived that are in a museum collection. And why birds, you may ask? Well, this cage held three parakeets that would have provided some color and song to the patients. So I guess they were trying. (laughs) I don't think that's kind of music I want to listen to. I mean, we got nothing else going on, I'm assuming. And it's also likely that the birds were taken care of and fed by somebody that was a long-term patient. So I'm assuming, like, that would probably be a treatment for them. But they also probably felt some kind of connection to this bird, because I can't imagine that they wouldn't feel like they're also a caged, you know, bird, if you will. I 
can kind of see how this would be therapeutic. You can take care of something that you feel very close bond with. Yeah, it makes me think of like pet therapy of people taking care of horses or dogs or anything like that. And just helps soothe and relax a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'll post a picture of this birdcage. I thought this was interesting because my entire time of researching, Arkansas never had a bird, so I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so finally, our last object is now kept at the New York State Museum, and some of the artifacts are kept at the Museum of Disability History in Buffalo, New York. And they all came from Willard Asylum for the Insane, which is where I got a lot of this information, plus some more from the Road Trippers, which I'm a big fan of them now. So. I went down a big hole today. (laughs) So Willard Asylum admitted its first patients in 1869. And story as old as time, many patients came from poorhouses and jails. They had farm operations. It was renamed a few times. It was accused of some horrible and inhumane treatments. And it was overcrowded. (laughs) So this is definitely a theme with all asylums. But more than 50,000 patients were admitted to Willard during its 126-year history. And nearly half of those died there. That is insane. Yes. That is so insane. That is a terrible statistic. That's really sad. But when Willard closed in 1995, workers discovered 400 suitcases in the attic that had been abandoned. Many of them appeared untouched since their owners packed them decades earlier before entering the institution. Many of the people who came to stay at Willard had been abandoned by their families or had nowhere else to turn. And when they died, their unclaimed bodies were buried in unmarked graves in cemeteries across the street. And then their possessions were shuttered away and forgotten. So this is also very similar to Arkansas. If you didn't have family that claimed you, you're put in a pauper's grave. But in then this instance, their possessions were actually preserved. I'm assuming that a lot of asylums had possessions, but I think they were either taken by employees or destroyed. But uh, all these were, like, immaculately preserved, which I find incredibly fascinating. So photographer John Crispin spent the past few years curating and documenting the contents of each of these bags. And then he did some extensive research to find the people that belonged to them. And then he created this series of photographs, which I 1,000% recommend getting his book or Googling Willard suitcases so that you can see these photos. Because they are just... They're so fascinating. They're sad, but it's just really interesting to think like these people knew they were coming to an insane asylum and like what they packed. So here's a quote for him. It's such compelling stuff. These people were essentially prisoners inside. Their families largely abandoned them. They gave them a suitcase and had them committed. Looking at these suitcases, you can just get the idea that these people really had lives outside before they went to Willard. And that's a quote that he told the Daily Mail. And uh, here's some more quotes that I found from him from various websites, but I found really interesting. And one of the main ones was 400 suitcases from an abandoned insane asylum. Inside is heart-wrenching. Good title, right? Yep. (laughs) All right, so the first one, he says, My goal is to give life to these people outside of being identified as mental patients. The objects in these cases reflect the lives they had before they were admitted. He says he has a great respect for these items, and it's his hope that his strong feelings about these objects is evident in all his photographs. He says he approaches the whole thing with respect for the objects and patients. He never knows what he's going to find. Sometimes it's mind-boggling. Sometimes it's funny. 
He says, and I wonder why, but I never question their decision to bring these objects. And here are some of the interesting objects I found when I looked at these photos. There were, <laughs> there were alarm clocks, complete table settings. So I'm talking like forks, knives, plates, cups, everything. Hmm. There were a lot of letters, a lot of photographs. There was a big-ass radio, which must have taken up most of the suitcase. Because it's one of those really old, you know, early 19th century, or not, early 20th century radios. There was a miniature baseball bat, which can't wrap around why you would need that in a same asylum. But, well, you know, just I, in case. <laughs> or as like a prized possession, I guess, that you'd want for comfort. That's true. There were some teeth. Some <laughs> so weird. <laughs> there was some clothing patterns. Like they really thought they'd have some downtime to make some. Okay. There was a lot of records, which I thought okay. were kind of. Yeah. Um, there was one suitcase that had a lot of dog figurines, which I'm a crazy dog lady, crazy dog mom, so that would definitely be what I took. It was like a figurine of my puppies. <laughs> there was a miniature broom, like a little tiny broom, no handle, just a wow. Hmm. I don't know what that'd be for. Me either. I also saw some wire cutters. <laughs> they had a plan. <laughs> there was some really expensive perfume and really fancy glass bottles. One lady had a thing called silk savers, which is supposed to prevent runs in your pantyhose. But no pantyhose on the <laughs> see. No, I was like, wait. <laughs> there were a lot of books. There were some musical instruments, which I found really neat. Like the really, the smaller ones. There was also wood carving instruments, which I can't imagine they would let them have because most of them are knives, but they tried. And then I found shoe cream, a lot of shoe cream. (laughs) You gotta, gotta keep up with appearances, I guess. Oh, is that the perfume? All of these pictures, he sets them up so beautifully, so artistic, but he has them set up like the suitcases and then all the objects are really displayed so that you can see them all. It's really, really interesting. I remember when I was researching my thesis, I saw his book a lot and it's just really cool. I don't think a lot of asylums had something like this that you had actual objects from the patients, but I found it very interesting and I highly recommend you look at them. I'll post some of the pictures, but yeah, you should definitely Google. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't imagine. If you're told, we're locking you up, dude, pack your suitcase, what would you take? What means so much to you that you decide that you have to take it with you? Put that in the comments and stuff after this episode's released. Let us know what you would take. Absolutely. And I honestly think this really preserves their memory of them, of like their personalities and their lives. Everything they brought with them really reflects like who they were. Because I imagine they probably felt like their identity was erased while they were there. But I really like this project. Like I said, they're all displayed in museums now. And, uh, so, Kina, what would you take? What, what's a couple of things you'd have to have with you? <sighs> I would probably, I would definitely want photographs. I'd probably want some sort of art thing. Because art's such a huge part of who I am. I would try to smuggle my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> They're not. I don't big. think that's possible. Your dogs are pretty big and they bark. True. Well, I just love them. But yeah, if I think of like what represents me, I I don't. It's really hard. What would you take? Probably art stuff too, or kindred yeah. spirits with the art stuff. Yeah. For those who don't know, Kina and I are twins, pretty much. <laughs> like in her phone, in my phone, she is Kina twin, just because. 
I know I'll look up Kina before I would look up twin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she just twin in my phone and then I forget. Like, there's Natalie. I'm like, oh shit, it's twin. <laughs> <laughs> I had to prevent like someone. I, I knew it happened to me too. Yeah, like my idea isn't really like what personality I would probably show. It's more like what can keep me entertained for a little while. <laughs> yeah. So okay. it's sketchbook and a pencil and then at least one or two books. I mean, I know a lot of the asylums really encourage artwork and stuff, but I would want my own stuff. I have, if you're an artist, you know this. You have one paintbrush you just love. You have one pencil that's perfect. You know, there's just, you want your own shit. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a musician. I'm like, well, I can't bring my drum set and my bongos and my violin and all my other stuff I have, too. I'm like, I would be so bored. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why not that? Suitcases had a dulcimer, like a really small one. So I guess it was compact enough that it could go in there. But I mean, most instruments would be too big. I do have a flute. I could guess. I guess I could take my flute and some drumsticks. I could never make the flute work for me. (laughs) It just never works. I know it's harder for people with a cupid's bow on their top lip. Yeah. And I I see. Yeah, you have one. My my top lip is really flat. I mean, I have full lips. Don't get me wrong. I, I do all right, uh, but it, there's no curve though. It's it's just flat. So like for me, it's perfect. Just whoo, like makes perfect sound. Well, I watched a video of Liz. I was trying to teach people how to play the flute, and none of them can make a sound. I'm like, that's me. <laughs> I was really good at reed instruments. I played the clarinet and bass clarinet, all that in school, and then I gave it all up to be a cheerleader. God, oh, I'm so basic. Lame. <laughs> so lame. But to be fair, our band director was so horrible. He was so mean, and he wasn't good, and he would just throw his baton at us all the time. And I just oh, you have those stories. I've heard of people with those stories. <laughs> yeah, so I was I was cheerleading captain, and then ball games I'd have to cheerlead, and then I had to run up in the stands and play pet band, and I just got exhausted. <laughs> I had to pick between one, and I was like, "Fuck you, band." But now I can't make a sound. Like, I used to win first place, solo an ensemble, and now I can't make a squeak. And it's really sad, so. Yeah, I haven't practiced like I used to, but I still have the, I have an electronic Roland drum set. And uh, so it doesn't bother my apartment neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) And I do okay. I used to be in jazz band, and uh, I was in drum line. I, I did orchestras for musicals in the local theater. I did all that fun stuff. I want to get back into it, but I just don't have time. Yeah, it is pretty time consuming. That's so fun. I love music. I just yeah. not as talented as I'd like to be. <laughs> and it's really cool with like going back to our asylum stuff. Like now they have music therapy and stuff is really yeah. Cool. I think that's cool. Yeah, the college I went to in Conway had music therapy, but I really wanted to do art therapy. That's why I originally majored in psychology because I want to do art therapy but there's only a couple of colleges that offered it at that time and they were none even close to Arkansas so (laughs) did not do that (laughs) I have a lot of passions (sighs) I'm one of those people I love so many things it's hard to pinpoint one so which is why we're twins (laughs) this is why we're twins we're very eclectic people (laughs) and that's why I love public history because I can do a lot of things all in one little box can do just everything I love, but yeah, it's ugh, it's wild, wild. So, all right, guys, that was part two of our asylums. 
if you listen to this and you decide that you want to hear even more content, you can go to Patreon. And that is www.patreon.com slash historicalafpod. And there we have drunk dives and bloopers and deleted scenes and book lists and bucket lists and just so much stuff. So you can go there and check out our tiers. And while you're there, you can see everything we've posted. It's just blacked out until you join. You can also hear Kina sound like a Muppet, too. Yeah, she's been editing and she's done that high pitch like Muppet sound and it's so funny. And my cackle is so funny and high pitch. And not all of it is bloopers. Some of it is actually things you've already heard. Not just cutaway scenes, but when it's sped up to that chipmunk Muppet sound, it makes them sound like very articulate children. <laughs> and it makes me laugh so much. So looking forward to more of that. Uh, but don't forget, we also have our social media. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Historical AF Pod. All right. And then if you would like to buy some of our merch, we have some cool alien stuff and some sayings we do and then our logo. And it is at shop.spreadshirt.com and slash Historical AF Pod. And definitely check out our social media because when things are like 15 or 20% off, we post that on our social media and then you can get a discount. Highly recommend. We're, we're also trying those uh, Mad Lib things. I really want y'all to see what you come <laughs> up with and for really funny. So please, please, please check out our Mad Lib posts and see what your script will be like. And I know. A lot of people liked it, but nobody filled it out yet. So I know. I'm to do that. <laughs> even, even if you just put your blank words up, you don't have to type the whole thing. Just something. Or just pick one sentence. Just something to... to Please me. (laughs) (laughs) But also for more goodies for photos and things that accompany our stories, there's sources and links to everything we've talked about. Go to our website, which is historicalafpodcast.wordpress.com. Go to it. It's awesome. All kinds of cool stuff. And if you want to learn more about what we're talking about. Yeah, and then finally, we need more of your stories. We do the extra AF episode every month. So we'd like to hear about your hometowns or your family history or just some cool paranormal or historical or true crime experience. You can email those to us at historicalafpod at gmail.com. And also, if you just want to email us some suggestions for stories or themes we should do, just go ahead and email us there, too. Oh, I know. I love the ghost story I just told last oh, time. So- so good <laughs> i was entranced oh, i'm so excited i love the stories you guys tell us they're so good really enjoy well, please send them send more <laughs> please us <laughs> please me <laughs> all right guys well we will talk to you next week and next week we will have a special guest and you're gonna love it oh, i'm so excited <laughs> me too i really am all right guys bye bye